Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around the workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, The International Labor Organization hosts the Global Social Protection Week. The event is the high point of 18 months of continuous activities on social protection in the context of ILO's 100th anniversary. The main issue that the Global Social Protection Week will discuss is the universal social protection in the context of the future of work. And to warm up for this special date, we invited Christina Barrett. Christina is the head of the Social Policy Unit at the ILO and we discussed the relations between the future of work, achieving universal social protection and the challenges to extend social protection to the so-called missing middle, the informal economy workers. And now, let's hear this talk with Christina Barron from the ILO. Christina Welcome to the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. Thank you very much, Cyrus. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. So let's dive into it. The topic of this podcast, the future of work, is often associated with the technological innovations such as automation, machine learning, artificial intelligence. But the social implications of the transformation of work is often left out. Which are the key trends that will impact workers and that you think we should be attentive to? Yeah, in, indeed. I mean, our world of work is quite important and far-reaching changes and transformations that are driven by technological innovation, but also by demographic shifts, like the aging of the population, like migration, for example, um, but also environmental change, climate change and globalization, and obviously persistent informality and high and often growing levels of inequality. And all these transformations, obviously, they pose major challenges but also open up new, new opportunities. But I think it's important to see how we can actually navigate those transformations and making sure that the future is not kind of predetermined by the technological change, but that we keep humans in control of that. This is, in fact, an approach that was discussed at the, at the last International Labour Conference in June 2019. Um, which has actually agreed on a, a human-centered approach for the future of work. And so when we think about the, the social implications and trends, obviously you mentioned the, the technological change, which opens up new opportunities, but also exposes people to new risks. So I think in terms of the opportunities, I think one of the big advantages is really that it helps people to get access to information, access to new opportunities, employment opportunities, access to more and more exchange. This is obviously really creating a lot of opportunities for, for many people, especially those who are a bit at the periphery. But obviously, we also know that many people don't have that access to, to technology. So we also need to make sure that we can somehow bridge the digital divide that mm. is there on the one hand, but also making sure 
that we take care of issues like data protection and privacy and the question kind of to whom belong the data. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of issues that come around these questions and to see how can we actually harness these digital technologies for improving people's lives and work. And this obviously um, also provides important opportunities, but also risks for, for social protection. And uh, I mean, it's sometimes these issues are being discussed as if there was a kind of a, a trade-off between flexibility and uh, and protection, so that people actually need to trade greater flexibility against protection. This is really one of the challenges because, I mean, we should not use the future of work as an excuse to reduce protection for, for workers including and in particular for those who are in the in the informal economy. Also, this begs the question, what is the responsibility of those who benefit from people's work for also having a responsibility for ensuring their protection, not only in terms of social protection, but also in terms of important issues of labor protection. Mm. As you mentioned, new technologies and services are indeed changing the configuration of work relations with the so-called gig economy. But these informal work relations are a new dynamic in the world, especially in developing countries. Which, which parallels do you see between the informal economy and the gig economy when social protection is concerned? Do you think there might be learnings from the way informal workers have been getting provision of social protection that might contribute to the debate of these forms of employment? Um, yes, indeed. I see quite some parallels between what's called the, the gig economy and the informal economy. I mean, work is characterized uh, by a very high degree of flexibility, quite often a very high degree of volatility as well, um, and often also a lack, lack of protection, which really um, creates quite some, some challenges for people. And, and indeed, there are very important lessons in the way how countries, especially countries in the developing world, um, have extended social protection to workers in the, in the informal economy, adapting in, in a way the social protection mechanisms that they're, they're using to the situation of those workers and responding to specific challenges. For example, I mean, taking into account that incomes um, quite often are low and very, very volatile, that there are quite important barriers. On the one hand, barriers in the sense that people might have a limited capacity, for example, to contribute to social insurance, but might not necessarily also be able to follow the kind of this, what what is often considered as the kind of the standard way of, of contributing in the sense that you pay a stable and regular monthly contribution. But we have seen that those countries who have successfully extended coverage to those in the informal economy in, in developing countries, they have found ways of actually adapting those social insurance mechanisms to the characteristics of those in the informal economy. So, for example, finding adapted mechanisms for domestic workers in a, in a way that they have established mechanisms that actually help to cover those workers. Or for agricultural workers, taking into account seasonality, for example, or um, extending coverage to self-employed workers also by finding ways of facilitating the why and also the interaction also between the, the self-employed person and, and the administration. And I think what's also a very important point is adapting the legal and policy frameworks, making them much more adapted 
to the situation and ensuring that kind of gradually you extend to more and more categories of, of workers. And now when I when I say workers, I mean workers in all types of employment, including including also on on account workers, self employed workers, um, reducing administrative barriers, making access much easier, making it easier for people to transfer entitlement from one scheme to another or to transition from for example for different sectors of employment or transition or even combining employment into in the sense of dependent employment or self-employment and also addressing one critical issue and this is really about awareness and trust so really making sure that people can recognize the value of why it is important for them to be protected and also trust having the trust in the in the social protection system to really provide them with the benefit they need whenever they need them mm. you mentioned the importance of extending social protection, which is a very important concern in the literature. And, and in the literature comes this term that I would like you to uh, develop further. What is the so-called missing middle when we are talking about social protection and how does that relate to the debate around the future of work? Yeah, actually, the, the term missing middle, that is describing a situation which is quite common in, in, in many developing countries, where you have a certain proportion of the population which is relatively well protected uh, by social insurance and by other mechanisms. And these are typically most of those in the formal economy. And then you have another category of the, of the population that has access to social assistance or so-called safety net programs that are poverty targeted but also often aim at categories of the population who are not in the labor force, such as children or older persons. And then you have those in the middle, and most of them kind of make a living in the informal economy, which are not covered by either of those mechanisms. They cannot access the social insurance because their situation does not allow it and the system might not be adapted to their situation. But at the same time, they don't qualify for the for the poverty targeted programs because, well, first of all, they are in work and often they might not be kind of poor enough to really qualify for those for those programs. And so quite often those in the middle really face particular challenges in really getting access to social protection. But at the same time, they are absolutely in need of it because the lack of social protection mechanisms for those in the, in the middle does really create a very important risk for them. Because, I mean, the moment they fall sick, the moment they become pregnant, the moment they become old, they're struggling even more. And this can really also jeopardize their, their future and not only their own future, but also the future of their children or other members of, of their family. And, and in fact, the, there is an important relation also to the debate around the future of work, because here also we talk about a certain polarization of the labor market between those who are well protected and can really seize the opportunities um, that are uh, offered to them in the future of work and those who find themselves in jobs which are not well paid, not well protected or even even without, without jobs. So it's really the challenge is really making sure that everyone is well protected throughout their lives. So everyone needs protection and that really means that everyone needs to be covered it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone needs to receive benefits at every point in time. I mean, for example, if you have a for a health insurance, I mean, you 
you you have the health insurance and that gives you the peace of mind that in the moment when you need it you can actually access the healthcare that you need so it's really about protecting everyone at every point in time but that doesn't necessarily mean that you receive benefits at every point in time and i think this is an important point about understanding the concept of universality of protection that really it's it needs to protect everyone so that we can make sure that everyone who needs social protection can access whenever he or she needs it Mm-hmm. One idea that often emerged on, on the debate around the future of work is the adoption of a universal basic income. What are your thoughts around that question? Yeah, no, I mean, as I, as I said, I think there's a very strong case to be made for more universal approaches that really recognize that everyone is in need of social protection throughout his or, his or her life. And reaching universal coverage is really essential in that. But then the the question about a, a universal basic income in the sense that you would have a benefit that's being paid to everyone constantly raises also some questions with regard to its economic, political and social feasibility. So I, th- I think this this is an important debate and we've actually worked on, on that question and have even made some simulations to really see how much would it cost and how countries could actually possibly implement it. So in that respect, maybe I can also introduce another term, which is a, a social protection floor, which is a concept that has its roots in the ILO and which has been adopted uh, in, a, in a recommendation in 2012, a social protection floors recommendation. And here the idea is that everyone should have a basic social security guarantee in the sense that everyone has at least a basic level of social security throughout their lives. But here the concept is slightly different compared to a UBI. A UBI could be one way of achieving a, a social protection floor, but it's not the only one because countries could also achieve it through a combination of, of different schemes, for example, and making sure that people actually have the right under very well-defined defined conditions to access the benefits. Now, coming back to the question of a a universal basic income, I think there are a number of questions uh, which I think in the the debate are very much open questions. One is the question of the level of benefits and, and adequacy. So what are really the mechanisms to make sure that the level of benefit is adequate and also stays adequate and making sure that in the political process, uh, there are certain safeguards in place that really make sure that the level of benefits uh, of a universal basic income is really sufficient to at least prevent poverty, but I think at the, at the very minimum. But then the question is, the universal basic income is sometimes discussed in a way that it could be something like a kind of a panacea. And I think here also we need to take into account that in itself, a universal basic income it's probably not sufficient to achieve social cohesion if, for example, labor market institutions like kind of labor market regulation, wages, social dialogue, collective bargaining are being weakened. So I think it's also the question of in, in what kind of context um, such a universal basic income would be implemented. The question of financing is obviously a very important question. Would would it be possible to mobilize sufficient level of tax resources through progressive taxation 
And that in a context, especially where um, we know that value-added tax often acts in a in rather a regressive way, or at least is not sufficiently progressive, but also where when we talk about corporate tax uh, in a context where companies are more and more mobile and find ways of escaping taxation. So that's another challenge. Mm. The other question is, um, in a way, if we think about a universal basic income as providing kind of a, a basic level of protection, then the question is, what would come on top of, of such a universal basic income? Would it be um, social insurance, which is based on a kind of a broad collective financing mechanisms based on solidarity, or would it be private insurance and individual savings? This is an important question because if on top of a UBI, you leave everything else to the market in terms of private insurance and individual savings, you don't have any additional mechanisms of redistribution. It might increase poverty and inequality, especially in contexts where you cannot ensure that the level of a universal basic income is really, really adequate. And the final point maybe is the question, and I think this is key, especially when we talk about this in the, in the context also of, of a kind of a gendered uh, approach and also with regard to the informal economy. The question of access to services is an important one. We know that when we think about addressing inequalities and, and preventing poverty, services play a very critical role. And the question is really whether you can really address the full range of people's needs with income alone or whether you also need to think about the services that need to need to go along with it in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of care services or other basic services. And I think this is another important question. Some people are thinking about universal basic services as a possible alternative to, to universal basic income. Um, which is an interesting idea, but I think the discussion is very much open on these concepts. But I think, in general, what I think is really a very, very positive point about this discussion is that we are discussing in much in a much more open way about uh, universal concepts and really making sure that thinking about the ways in which everyone has access to the necessary uh, resources, be it income or, or be it access to services. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the, the question of financing the universal basic income, but uh, this issue of financing is also important uh, for the social protection debates as, as a whole. In the context of changing work relations, uh, do you think it's possible to design a social protection system that does not rely on employment-related provision? Uh, how how would that look like? Um, there, there is an important debate on, on the question of the, the linkages between social protection and employment. But what I see in the debate is quite often that there is a bit of confusion on what exactly we're thinking of delinking on, because it, it's discussed in very different ways. For example, there are some social protection mechanisms that are linked to a contract with a specific employer, which means that you would lose that social protection if you lose your job. If you have a, a health insurance which is sponsored by your by your employer, or if you think about uh, company pension schemes, there is a very high risk that people lose that kind of protection when they're losing a job. And I think this is certainly not a form of social protection which is very sustainable, especially in the in the context of the future of work. I mean, that could end 
only be kind of complementing a level of protection which is provided through other means. But then, for example, if we think about other mechanisms, for example, if we think about social insurance mechanisms, and social insurance is very much in that debate, there are basically two basic ways of how social insurance is structured. There are social insurance mechanisms that are more or less limited to employees. That is those who are independent employment. But in many countries, actually, social insurance mechanisms are much broader and also cover a much wider categories of, of workers, including those in self-employment. And, and actually, those broader forms of social insurance, they are very well prepared, actually, to, to respond to the higher kind of frequency of, of changes of jobs, moving people between self-employment and, and dependent employment. And it's important that they are really based on a very large risk pool and that they support workers' labor mobility. And I think in many countries have been actually moving into that direction to really opening social insurance up to more categories of workers. And I think in that respect, and these forms of social protection that are linked to employment, I think these are very, very promising. I mean, just to mention one example, in Uruguay, social insurance covers both employees and the self-employed. And they do it through mechanisms that are adapted to each kind of category of workers. For example, they have had for many years a, a mechanism in place to facilitate the access to social insurance for the self-employed, for micro-entrepreneurs, and for uh, on-account workers, so through kind of a simplified mechanism to cover them. And that enabled them to include very easily, for example, the kind of the new forms of employment like uh, Uber drivers uh, in that mechanism. And they're also now covered in social insurance. And through that mechanism, it is actually possible to ensure adequate levels of social protection through these, these adapted mechanisms and, and larger risk pools. But nevertheless, I think when we talk about the way how social protection systems can move forward into, into the future, I think there are definitely, there's definitely a, a much larger scope also for tax finance benefits to really complement to complement social insurance and to make sure that there is um, at least a basic level of social protection. So in, in that respect, I think having the solid basis in terms of social insurance and tax finance benefits provides really a very good mechanism for the future. When it comes to private insurance and individual accounts, these are often being discussed as being kind of disconnected from employment. Uh, but they're not, because obviously every kind of contributory form of provision is indirectly linked to gainful employment, so in the sense that they require a regular stream of income. But those mechanisms, again, they should also only complement the very solid uh, levels of social protection that we have through tax finance mechanisms and social insurance, but they don't provide the level of risk sharing and redistribution that really constitutes the core of a, of a social protection system. So in, in that sense, I would hope that the discussion about this decoupling of social protection from employment, I think we need to introduce a bit more granularity into that into that debate thinking about different ways of combining the kind of tax finance provision and uh, and social insurance mechanisms. Mm -hmm. 
Can you provide some examples of countries that have successfully addressed to the challenge of extending social protection coverage for this uh, missing middle? You mentioned Uruguay. Can you provide other examples? Um, yes, Uruguay is, is in fact a, a very interesting example. Then when we think about covering the self-employed, another example is Algeria who has got a scheme that covers what they call non-salaried workers, also again through adapted mechanisms. Then, for example, if we think about domestic workers, South Africa has extended social insurance a couple of years ago uh, to domestic workers, and especially um, unemployment benefits and maternity benefits, which again brings us back to the, the discussion on, on gender issues. For example, when we think about agricultural workers, Brazil has an interesting pension scheme for agriculture workers, both rural producers and and, and workers that um, takes into account seasonality and uses adaptive mechanisms to, to cover them. Or other countries such as Costa Rica, for example, have been used have been working with cooperatives that can play the role of a kind of a relais between the agricultural producers and the social insurance administration. So there is a lot of ways to adapt social insurance mechanisms. But then when we think about the tax finance mechanisms, which obviously also play a very uh, important role. We have seen a large number of countries in recent years adopting uh, universal pension schemes, for example, Namibia, Lesotho, Nepal, Timor-Leste, and other countries, which play a very important role in ensuring um, income security for those who have worked all their lives in the informal economy. There's more and more countries that are looking into universal uh, child benefits. For example, Mongolia has quite an uh, experience in, in universal child benefits. Thailand is looking uh, into introducing universal child benefits for children um, up to the age of five. But then also when we think about uh, health coverage, we have a lot of experiences on, on universal health coverage in countries like Ghana, Thailand, Rwanda, or Gabon, where countries are really progressively moving towards ensuring uh, universal access to healthcare for, for everyone. So there are a lot of examples and using, using different mechanisms, often a combination of mechanisms, to really um, making sure that social protection is really available to, to everyone, including, including the missing middle. Right. So to conclude, can you tell us a bit more about what the the ILO is doing to support governments in terms of policies to extend social protection for informal workers? First and foremost, we're providing support to countries in doing that, and that this includes all kinds of support: support on the on the financing, support on the on policy frameworks and legal legal frameworks, support really on in um, devising implementation mechanisms, support and helping to raise awareness and, and building trust in in many countries. I mean, for example, just to may mention some countries we've been supporting in in Zambia, the extension of social security to domestic workers, uh, rural workers, and construction workers, um, also in other countries like Vietnam, for example. So this is one important part of our work. But then also when it comes to the more political role, providing a political forum, sharing of experiences, developing knowledge, also generating a political consensus around this issue and raising awareness. And I think in that respect, having the ILO as a standard setting organization is a very important role. 
in that context. I've already mentioned the Social Protection Force recommendation, which was adopted in 2012. Especially when we think about informal workers, the ILO has been adopting another recommendation, which is on the transition from the informal to the formal economy, which was adopted in 2015. And I think these processes also provide a very important forum for developing internationally agreed guidance, but also for, for sharing knowledge. And then we're also developing very practical tools. For example, we've been trying to really assess and collect and summarize country experiences and how have countries actually addressed the question of extending coverage to the workers in the informal economy? Because there's not a one-size-fits-all recipe for that. But I think what we see in the exchange that we have with our constituents is that they're very much looking forward and learning more about other countries' experiences. So in that respect, we have been developing a toolkit, a resource package, which really brings together those kinds of experiences and makes it available to everyone who's, who's interested in that. And that is actually a resource package which will be available very, very soon and which includes a lot of different resources, including very practical tools, links to videos, links to awareness raising campaigns in some countries, um, links to studies and analysis, for example, that look at the diagnostics, examples of more political processes, examples on how countries have structured their schemes. So it really tries to bring together this package to really help policymakers and help social partners and help others to really develop solutions that are really responding to their needs in each particular context. Excellent. Christina Berend, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Cyrus. It has been a pleasure. And if you want to know more about the debates of the Global Social Protection Week and about the linkages between the future of work and social protection for informal workers, we will leave some links at the description of the episode as usual. WIGO's Social Protection Program Director, Laura Alfers, will be one of the speakers at the Global Social Protection Week, debating challenges, country experiences, and way forward to extend social protection to informal economy workers in order to cover the missing middle. If you want to learn more about this, please follow WIGO on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next month.